Thank you for tuning in to Hill Country Fellowship's audio podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired as you listen today. For more information, visit us online at hcfburnett.org. Good morning, everybody. I'm glad you're here. Um, with the time change, it's almost been an hour, so people can. You're, you're welcome to walk in uh, late now. Um, so I got a question for you to get started today. Have you ever let your pride get in the way? Let your pride get in the way. Particularly, I'm thinking of relationships. Uh, maybe you let your pride um, get in the way of admitting that you were wrong and uh, asking forgiveness. Let your pride get in the way of opening up and connecting with somebody. Let your pride get in the way of admitting that um, there's, there's a problem and you need help. Maybe letting your pride get in the way of having company over to the house because it's too messy and you didn't have time to clean up or pride get in the way of connecting with somebody and stopping to talk to them because you don't look um, good enough. And our pride gets in the way of relationships. And as I was thinking about this for, for this week um, and studying it, it turns out that, uh, I was thinking of normal people, but it turns out that also athletes have a problem with letting their pride get in the way. So I have a video that I wanna show y'all. I know we just watched a lot of video, but here's one more for you to check out the, of athletes letting their pride get in the way. First and goal, Buffalo. Well, this is the same route they just missed a little bit earlier. You see him, he just goes right by Darren Walls. Now, this is unfortunate. Watch him at the end here. He begins to showboat and he eases up a little bit. He never feels mm -hmm. a keen. That's a rookie mistake by Sammy Watkins. Look at him change his gait and slow up and begin to celebrate around the 10-yard line. Take my word for it. There's a moral to this story. Yeah, it looked like a coronation for Tanche Pepio. He's getting the crowd. He wants the crowd to cheer his performance. And at the end, he gets pipped. He gets pipped by Marin Simon of Washington. And you just can't do this kind of stuff, Lewis. You can, and you know, you see his face. Adam Richardson, still an opportunity with a minute to play. It's closing time. Oh, that last one stings, just that, that walk of shame there. But our, our pride gets in the way, and that's what we're going to see today in Zephaniah. Uh, we started this series last week. Um, it's a quick series, just three chapters. I'll give you plenty of time to turn there, Zephaniah. Um, there's no shame in using the table of contents. I've been studying this for like two weeks now, and I still struggle to get there, except I have a bookmark, so I'm already there. Um, but Zephaniah chapter two, we'll see today that our pride gets in the way of a relationship with God and connecting with God. Remember, uh, Scott talked last week about some of the setting of this. Zephaniah was, uh, in the Old Testament, King Josiah was the king at the time. He's known for being one of the few righteous kings. He, be, he was thrust into power at the age of eight. Um, Israel had already split into two nations. The northern Israel had already been wiped out by Assyria, and all that was left was southern Judah and also the tribe of Benjamin. And Josiah was king of those people. And pagan idolatry was just rampant in this time period. And uh, even child sacrifice um, to certain pagan gods. And, and so it was really bad. And they rediscovered the book of the law in the temple. And king, when they read it to King Josiah, he was just undone by this. And he started in, instituting all these reforms and revival broke out. And uh, Zephaniah was given as a prophecy during that time period. And so as we read Zephaniah 2 today, um, it's, it's about this pride getting in the way of relationship with God. And our big idea today is that God's presence pushes out pride. 
So I'm going to read uh, out of the ESV. I'm reading the whole chapter all the way through, okay? Verse 1. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. For Gaza shall be deserted and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. Verse eight, I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. Verse 12, you also, O Cushite, shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog, shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. So for a while I considered naming this sermon the attack of the hedgehogs. Um, <laughs> It's not every day you get to have hedgehogs in your sermon, so I chose the ESV. It translates as hedgehog there. Uh, but this is, this is heavy, right? Pretty intense stuff. But, um, just like last week, even, even more intense, I think. Chapter one and two have all this judgment coming from God. And chapter two here, there's, there's some of the hint of some hope and promise, which we'll get to a lot in uh, chapter three. So a lot of this is gonna be piggybacking off of Scott's sermon from last week. If you haven't listened to that, go and, and check that out. So one of the, the main things that stands out, the, the theme in Zephaniah, and it pops up all over scripture, if you've read um, your Bible very, for very long, you've come across this phrase, the day of the Lord. It's heavy here in Zephaniah, the day of the Lord. We usually think of that as kind of this, the end times, as Jesus coming and, and the end of everything. Uh, but, it, but it also means it's, it's kind of this phrase that can mean multiple time periods, multiple days, and um, there's isolated incidents in history. Like here, it's talking about the destruction of Assyria and Nineveh, and that, that happened in history. And uh, in Jeremiah, he prophesies um, Babylon coming to destroy Jerusalem and taking them into captivity. That happened in history. 
But here in the prophets, when they talk about the day of the Lord, they, they kind of have this double meaning of something that is coming kind of immediately for them and um, this final, ultimate, I would say capital D, day of the Lord, when Jesus comes back and, and God comes in his presence in a real way and in his judgment usually is what it's associated with. And uh, there's a good summary um, in, in Isaiah chapter two, verse 11 and 12. This is a good summary of what they mean when they're talking about the day of the Lord. It says, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. The day of the Lord is, is this arrival of God's presence in a more real, tangible way for him to accomplish his purposes. He's gonna level the playing field. Everything that's proud is going to be brought low on the day of the Lord. So Zephaniah, he adds a little bit here to this phrase. It says the day of the anger of the Lord. God's anger. God gets angry. What do we make of that? How does that make us feel? It's kind of uncomfortable, right? What is God's anger? What is it not? Um, it, it definitely is not a temper tantrum. God is not a two-year-old who's mad at having to put shoes on. Um, when, when God is angry, it's always for, for right reasons. He's totally justified in being angry. God's anger is always rightly caused and it's rightly acted upon. He is, he's not like us humans who are so quick to anger. One of the main things that we know about God's character throughout scripture, there's so many verses that say, um, Exodus 34, verse six, for example, the Lord is gracious and slow to anger. He is slow to anger. It's always rightly caused and he has always had perfect patience leading up to that point. And, and it's still kind of uncomfortable, okay? At, at the very least, God getting angry shows us that he is relational. We have a relationship with God. It's dynamic. It's not this robotic, like, contract kind of thing. He reacts to us, and he cares about us. The, the choices that we make, he has a reaction to it. We have a relationship with him. He has feelings toward us, and he cares about us. And the things that we care about, the things that we value, are the things that we get most passionate about. The things we care about the most are the things that we most, are most prone to maybe get angry about. And God cares, one, about, about his glory and his honor, and he cares about his people. He cares about you. He cares about me. He cares about a relationship with us. He values that. And because he values that so much, he's prone to maybe get angry about things maybe getting in the way of that. When something gets in the way of what I value, I'm more prone to have passion and, and feeling and maybe anger about that. Like in the mornings, I care about getting places on time. And so when I have a two-year-old who's throwing a temper tantrum for putting shoes on, um, I'm more prone to have passion and maybe get angry, probably unjustified. Our values get out of line. But, but the thing we value, when it's at stake, when it's on the line, something threatens it, we have more passion about that. God values a relationship with us. And when something gets in the way of that, he is more passionate. He would get angry about that. And what gets in the way of a relationship with God more than anything is our pride and our sin. So even in this anger and this judgment though, God is still faithful to his people like Scott was talking about during the offering time. God is faithful to his people. In verse, um, verse seven and verse nine, he talks about this remnant of Israel, which is a, another huge important topic 
um, throughout the Bible, but God provides a way, even though his judgment is coming down, even on his own people, that was kind of the kicker there. They, they look um, to all the other nations and God bringing the, the judgment, but he's bringing it on his own people too. That's the kind of twist ending. Even in the midst of that, he provides a way for his remnant and he's still faithful to his people and wanting a relationship with them. This day of the Lord is going to be experienced by everyone. Um, he, he announces judgment on these four particular nations, but, but really, like for, uh, chapter one was saying, it's global. It, it's, it's everywhere you look. These are the four points of the compass from Israel's perspective. God's saying, look around you. Anywhere you look, my judgment is coming. It's this global thing. Everyone is going to experience the day of the Lord. And the question is, will it be awesome or will it be awful? Everyone is going to experience awe when God's presence arrives on the scene. Everyone will, will experience awe, A-W-E. And for those of us who have bowed willingly to Jesus, um, that's going to be an awesome thing. For those who, who still have their pride in the way, that's an awful thing. Um, there's in verse 11, when I first read this, it made me think of, of missions like Peru and everything going on right now. It says, the Lord will be awesome against them for he will famish all the gods of the earth and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. It, it's, it's this awesome triumphal thing that God has this heart for the entire world to bow to him. It reminds me of my favorite chapter in the Bible, Philippians 2. The New Testament says for Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to Jesus. The question is, will you do it willingly on this side of eternity? Because on the other side of eternity, everyone will, uh, will or unwillingly be bowing to Jesus. And that's an awesome thing if we do it now and, and lay down our pride now, or it's an awful thing if you hang on to your pride and God's presence has to push it out. So this is ultimately a good and encouraging thing that God gets angry because it's this promise that, that God is one day going to get rid of sin and evil once and forever, finally and fully. We, this broken experience that we have in the world today is not how forever is going to be. It's an encouraging thing that God is going to get rid of sin and evil and, and put it away. And his anger against sin is what accomplishes that. That is an encouraging thing for us. And so all of this about God's justice and his anger is great, but we're reading in the Old Testament, right? This is, that's where God is angry. He's this demanding father, but Jesus comes and, and then he's loving and everything. That's not how it works. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All of these things are true about God all the time. But it, it raises this question, like how does an Old Testament prophecy apply for us on the other side of Jesus as New Testament believers? A lot of times we wanna take the, the encouraging verses out of the New Testament and just directly apply those to us, but we might wanna ignore chapters like this. It, it's a good question of how does that apply? And like uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, we wanna say, just put an equal sign there and say, yes, God knows the plans I have for you. That applies to us now. And it kind of does because it, it was applied to Israel, but through Jesus, we are grafted into Israel. So yes, it is true and it does apply to us. But some of these were only in a certain context and whatnot. We have to know the context of what he's talking about. And so here, there was a verse that stood out to me. It's kind of a head scratcher. I don't know if you heard it towards the beginning. In verse three, it says, seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Perhaps. 
That doesn't feel too encouraging to me. Um, And that's the situation that Old Testament Israel was in at this point. God had already um, exhausted all all of his patience. He had raised his voice. He had had made the threat of of the punishment that was coming, and it was here. It's coming. This is your last chance, and it's not going to change that the judgment was coming. But perhaps if, if all they could do is fall flat on their face and, and humbly admit their wrong to God and repent, and perhaps they would be saved. That is not true of us in the, in the New Testament through Jesus. One of my favorite verses is 1 John 1, 9. It says, confess your sins. And the, when we confess our sins, God is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There is no perhaps in that promise for us as New Testament believers. When we humbly come to Jesus and confess our sins, it is a guaranteed promise of the grace of God because Jesus took that judgment and the the punishment, all of that anger, the, the wrath of God against sin, he took that on himself for us. And so it's a guaranteed promise now. There's no perhaps when we repent and, and turn to Jesus. And so um, th- that doesn't give us a, a license to sin, though. That doesn't mean that we should take it lightly. Um, sin is no big deal. It is serious. That's why Jesus came to, to deal with it seriously. Every time that, that we confess and we have that guarantee promise of God's grace and his mercy, it should still leave us in, in wonder and amazement. That's why we worship. Um, just because God chooses to forgive us when he didn't have to. He has made the promise we can take it to the bank, but he didn't have to. And we, we should wonder and, and worship him for that. So pride is the, the theme here of why God's judgment is coming. James 4.16, it says that he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride is what gets in the way of a relationship with God. Pride is this this me-centered attitude, assuming that the entire world, everyone else, everything in the world exists for me and for my purposes and my benefit. We usually don't, wouldn't admit that, but by the choices that we make and the actions that we do, we're living that way as if that is true. It's this attitude that he condemns at the, the very end In verse 15, he's talking of Nineveh. This is the exalted city that lives securely and said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. That's the me-centered attitude of pride. C.S. Lewis, he puts it this way. He says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they're guilty of themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. It's like Scott said, when, when we hear a sermon and a good point or, or read a Bible verse and we immediately think, oh, I hope so-and-so is listening. Or I, I think, really think so-and-so needs to hear that. I'm gonna send this to them. Instead of, God's word is a mirror and it should apply first to us and the pride in my own heart rooting that out. It's this assumption that the problem can't possibly be me. Um, it, is, it is springtime, spring has sprung, and it is baseball season. Uh, y'all pray for me. I'm helping coach my son's t-ball team, and it is, it is very fun, very interesting. But um, there's this, this joke of a kid who, uh, he goes outside with a bat and a baseball, and he says, I'm the best hitter in the world. And he tosses the baseball up and swing and a miss. And uh, he's not gonna be shaken by that. He picks up the baseball, he says, I'm the best hitter in the world. Tosses it up, swing and a miss. 
He's a little bit frustrated now. He says, no, I'm, I'm the best hitter in the world. Tosses it up and swing and a miss. He says, I'm the best pitcher in the world. It, from a young age, all of us have this struggle that the problem cannot possibly be me. The problem must be someone else, something else. It can't possibly be, be me. But the answer, what God desires for us is humility. And the starting point of this is just entertaining the, the thought, maybe, possibly, you're the one that's wrong. I'm the, I'm the one who's wrong. I'm the problem. It's me. When God shows up, his presence pushes out pride. Everyone is humbled. Let's humble ourselves prior to his presence coming. Picture a time in your life when you felt God's presence in a a more real, a more tangible way. What What I always hear from people is that it's a humbling experience. When we're in, the, in pre- God's presence and more aware of it, nothing else matters but him in that moment. We can't help but lay our pride down and, and all of our own interests, it's, it's all about him. And, and repentance comes of that too, laying our sin down. God's presence pushes it out. It, it can't help but fall. These ex- examples, again, from last week of the revivals happening and um, when, when people go, they, they expect God's presence and they, they meet God's presence there. And the common thread in all of that is humility and repentance. In God's presence, humil- uh, humility has to follow. Pride has to fall. So that's what God desires for us and what his presence brings. And he gives three commands here to the humble in uh, verse three. And I would say that these are three remedies to pride, three antidotes for us. He says, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So first he says to seek the Lord, seek the Lord. When we seek God and more of his presence in our lives, the more we see ourselves rightly. Humility is not just like bashing ourselves, putting ourselves down. It's just seeing God rightly and seeing ourselves rightly. And, and pride has this way of thinking that everything I have, everything I've accomplished, everything I'm able to do, I'm the source of it, and, and it's something to boast about. But when we see God rightly for who he is, we recognize that he is the source of, of anything I'm able to accomplish or attain or do anything. God is the source of that, and we humbly acknowledge that, and it leads to more gratitude when we seek the Lord in our life. And we recognize his presence is always with us. Because of Jesus, the spirit of God lives in us and his presence, whether we're aware of it or not, his presence is always with us. So pride has no place in the the life of a Christian. Second, he says to seek righteousness, pursue righteousness. The more we see God in his rightful place, we recognize that his ways are better than my own ways. Pride comes before the fall is what scripture says. Every time I choose my own ways and I say, God, my ways are better than yours, I'm gonna do what I want, it leads to a fall. But recognizing God in his place, we, we humbly recognize that his ways are better than mine. Even if I don't fully understand it, even if it doesn't fully feel right in the moment, we're gonna trust God in his ways and we're gonna seek righteousness, pursue righteousness in our life. God cares about how we live. Sin is not a small issue. And the more we seek righteousness, ultimately it points to our need for Jesus. Zephaniah is is somewhat a a limited picture here. If you read all the prophets, there's the full picture. 
In Jeremiah 31, God promises this new covenant, which Jesus did make with us. And he says in that new covenant, he's gonna write the law on our hearts. He's gonna give us that desire. And in Ezekiel 36, he says he'll replace our heart of stone with the heart of flesh. That's what Jesus accomplishes for us. On our own, we're always gonna um, struggle with these things and we need to lean more into Jesus to seek righteousness. And, And the more we lean into Jesus and seek him, righteousness will come. And last, he says to seek humility, which is kind of interesting. If you notice, he he addresses this to the humble of the land, and he says for them to seek humility. And this shows that, that pride is not natural, or humility is not natural. Pride is always what we're going to tend towards. Humility is a, is a constant fight. It's a constant battle against pride. Pride is always at our door. This shows, again, the importance of leaning into Jesus, but also the importance of community and why we stress life groups here. I encourage you, if you're not plugged into a life group, get plugged into a life group, that small, caring community of people who know you, you know them, they know your life, they know your struggles, and and they can encourage you and pray for you. It's so important to be in community. Zephaniah, at the very beginning here, he's saying for them to gather together. It's a community effort for them to, to fight sin. Um, It's a similar story with Nineveh also of the book of Jonah, if you remember, which was centuries earlier when Nineveh had the right response. But he finally goes and preaches against them and and, uh, the king gathers them together and they all collectively repent of their sins. And it's this amazing thing. So it's important for us as a community to fight our sin. James 5.16, it says, so confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. It's so important to come together to confess our sins. When's the last time you confessed your sin to someone else out loud? Not just in, in prayer to God, which is, is huge also, but out loud to someone else. It's a humbling experience, which is the point why he calls us to do this, to confess our sin out loud to someone else. So I encourage you, life group leaders, if, if it's not already, make this a, a part of your, your gathering is have an open space to confess sin. The more we confess sin out loud to each other, we get to speak God's grace and God's promises to each other and we see sin for what it really is and we can encourage each other in fighting it. So it's so important to confess sins and be part of a community. The more we practice confession, the more we will see God's grace in action in our lives. So before we wrap up here, one, one last note is on verse two, what it says here, to gather together before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff. Chaff was uh, the exterior of, of wheat. When they're threshing wheat, the, the kernel is surrounded by the, the chaff and they toss it up in the air and the wind blows it away, the, the, blows the chaff away and the kernel comes back down for them to work with the wheat. And God is saying that the the day, this opportunity for them to repent is passing away like chaff. It can can just blow away so easily without us even realizing it. Even even today, we have this same tendency to think, that pridefully assume that I have more time. Somewhere down the road, I will get right with Jesus. Somewhere down the road, I'll take my faith seriously. Somewhere down the road, I'll repent. And, And we let the days pass away like chaff. But God is saying the time is now. Every stage of life, we, we always have this same prideful assumption. 
Um, students, what has Kevin been, been sharing with y'all so often lately in the theme of Citywide, if you were there, was the time is now. As teenagers, we can think like, oh, I, I might come to church if my parents make me or something, but really I'm gonna do what I want to and I'll, you know, I'll believe in Jesus somewhere later down the road. And then we get to, to college or as young adults and, and we think the same thing, like now I'm in my prime and, and I'll sow my wild oats now and then I'll settle down and live for Jesus somewhere down the road. But that's so backwards. Like living for Jesus is not settling down. Living for Jesus is the most exciting way you can live your life. And we have that assumption everywhere down the road. And, and sadly, so many people get saved on their deathbed, which is an awesome thing, praise God, that it's never too late. But so many people that get saved later in life, their one regret is, is that they didn't do it sooner and live for Jesus sooner. God says the time is now to live for Jesus um, David Guzik in the Enduring Word commentary, he says this way, some people think that the devil's most powerful lie is that there is no God. Some people think that the devil's most powerful lie is that there is no truth. Some people think that the devil's most powerful lie is that the Bible is not the word of God. But probably the most dangerous lie of the devil is that there is no hurry. No hurry. Yes, I think it's a serious problem of, of atheism and the devil is, is tricking so many people with lies about God. But in our immediate community context, I would say that the greatest problem is so many people that if you would press them on it, they would say, yes, I believe in Jesus, I believe the Bible and everything, but it makes no difference in their life here and now. They're, they're faulty assuming that they have more time somewhere down the road to get serious about Jesus and they're living for themselves right now. That is the biggest problem we have. But the time is now, God says. It's, it's so prideful to think that we have any time. Every day we have is a gift from God. Every, even our next breath is a gift from God. We can't just pridefully assume that that's going to come. It's a gift from God and we don't uh, just bank on that. The time is now. And also for so many of us that do believe in Jesus, we've repented, we've laid down our pride. That's awesome. We pridefully assume on behalf of other people that there's more time. And we think, oh, I'll, I'll talk, to Je talk to them about Jesus somewhere down the road. There's gonna be a better opportunity. Um, they're gonna have more time somewhere down the road. And we keep kicking the can down the road. But that's a prideful assumption too. The time is now to tell people about Jesus that their time is now. We need to make this a priority. We, can, we have to fight this complacency in our lives and let the days pass away like chaff. The time is now. So as we wrap up today, um, I just want to share some of these applications that, that I've found in here, uh, trying to apply it to my own life too. Number one, let's rejoice in this absolute promise of God and in, in his grace that he's given us. He's taken the wrath through Jesus. It's not a perhaps for us anymore. So what do you need to repent of? Confess your sins. It's a humbling experience, but that is a good thing. Everyone is going to be humbled one day or another. Let's make it now. The time is now. Let's confess our sin out loud to others in community, in life groups. I encourage you to get plugged in to that. Let's be open to that possibility that I might be the one who's wrong. And whatever situation it is in your life, maybe, maybe it's you who's wrong, maybe it's me. Let's pursue righteousness and let that lead us to lean more into Jesus. And, and it's not do better and try harder, but lean more into Jesus and righteousness will come. 
Lastly, again, the time is now to turn to Jesus. Repent of your sin, give it up to him. He has this awesome loving relationship that he wants with you and your pride is what's in the way. Lay it down to him. And let's share the good news of Jesus with others now. All right, let's pray. God, I thank you so much for for your love for us. God, you desire this relationship with us. God, we let our pride get in the way so often, God. But your, your presence, we come here into your presence and it pushes out pride, God. So we lay our pride down today, whatever that needs to look like for us, God. We repent of our, our sin. Help us to, um, to humbly confess sins to each other, even out loud, God. God, I thank you in, in a weird way. Thank you for your anger, even, God, that, that you are going to put away with sin. Sin is not going to be forever in this broken world, God. We have the hope of eternity and your anger is gonna put out sin. God, so we thank you and we praise you for that, God. We know one day every knee is gonna bow to you, Jesus. We thank you that you have led us to that that moment of bowing to you willingly now on this side of eternity. God, help us now to be motivated and, and urgent to share the good news of Jesus now with people on this side of eternity, God. We just thank you for this word. We worship you now in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more sermons and full service replays, visit hcfburnit.org and follow us on social media. God bless and have a great week.